Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. I'm uh, too distracted by that igloo joke to, to begin. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Okay. Hey, uh, before we start uh, kind of diving in and studying our Psalm of the Week this morning, I want to give you a little update on where we're at with our volunteer situation and uh, also our harvest giving situation. Uh, as I mentioned uh, last week, if you were able to tune in, that we are aiming at opening up this beautiful brand new building on February 7th, but we had a pretty massive uh, volunteer shortage from uh, so many people stepping back from volunteering in the year 2020, which obviously is understandable given uh, what we've all faced. However, we are hearing that so many of you are going to be coming back in February And we are asking that if you're coming, uh, please serve with us. Uh, We don't want you to just come and watch and consume. If you're going to be here, then come and change the world with us. So how are we doing on this? You know, we've made some pretty good progress, I would say, in the past seven days. But we still have a little ways to go if we're going to open on February 7th. Uh, Our biggest need, lots of times people have asked, like, where's the need? Where's the need? Our biggest need, honestly, is in renovation kids. Uh, I mentioned last week that Literally 50%, half of our kids' volunteers uh, temporarily stepped away in 2020. So if 90% of you come back in February and you bring your kids and you invite your friends and they bring their kids, but only 50% of our volunteers are there, you can see that that's, that's where the problem is, right? That's where we're going to end up having to actually turn people away at the door. Uh, we still have also a huge need on both our greeting team and our cleaning team. So those are like the three real crunch points that are keeping us at this moment from opening. So renovation kids, greeting, and cleaning teams. The best way that you can help is just to respond to your ministry leader's email when they emailed all of you last week and said, are you coming back? Let us know. If, again, if, if you're still going to be watching from home until you get the vaccine, I get it. But if you're coming, uh, respond to your ministry leader and say, you know what, I'm, I'm ready, I'm coming back, I, uh, I'll serve. Or if you've never served with us before, this is a absolutely wonderful time to start. You can just go to the app, tap connect, uh, sign up to serve, or on our website, you can go to the serve page uh, as well. And then uh, we will make a final announcement next Sunday, so seven days from today, on if we got enough people this week to open on the 7th. If we don't, uh, we'll push that opening back to probably later on in February. So pray with us. Uh, I, we're, we're totally going in the right direction. I'm optimistic, but we, we got a little ways to go. Uh, also, a ton of you have asked me uh, this week, how are we doing in regards to the $33,000 that we were short in giving our bank for harvest? And I am so happy to announce to you that we made not just a little of it, but all of that up in one week. Uh, that is amazing. Uh, you all are amazing. Thank you. So many of you gave to this, and I'm just, I'm, I'm so, so grateful for it. It is just a thrill to pastor this church and just be on this adventure with you and God. So there is exactly six weeks left in harvest to the end of February. And if we all just keep up with our pledges for the final six weeks, we're going to get there. And uh, that is amazing. Okay, let's jump into uh, this week's message. You know, one of the things that you hear a lot about, uh, about the Bible is the prophecies and how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus. Uh, and prophecies are these godly predictions about Jesus made often hundreds, sometimes even a thousand years before Jesus came. 
Now, we sometimes tend to think that, okay, where would you find these prophecies in the Bible? We think, well, they're probably in the books of the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all of these great books. But you might be surprised to find that there are many prophecies about Jesus, even in the Psalms. And as we continue our series about the Psalms this morning, I want to look at a particular Psalm that is a great prophecy about Jesus. In fact, the Psalm we're going to look at today is actually the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. So go ahead, find a Bible, crack it right open to the middle like Pastor Josh said the other week, and I want you to look for Psalm 110. Uh, If you don't have a paper Bible in front of you, you can use our Renovation Church app, just have Bible in weekly verses. Uh, This famous psalm is quoted by a number of New Testament authors. It's quoted by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke. You'll also find it in in Acts, in 1 Corinthians, in Hebrews. And there's a number of places throughout the New Testament that sort of allude to its teaching. In fact, there's one New Testament scholar that said this psalm, Psalm 110, is alluded to 27 times in the New Testament. So what we're going to study today is important for us as Christians to understand. Now, Psalm 110 is a psalm of King David, so that means it was written about a thousand years before Jesus came to earth. And what we're going to do here is I'm going to read you the first verse, because there's a lot to kind of unpackage and explain, and then we'll read through the rest of it. So you're going to really want to keep this in front of you today too. So let's start with verse 1 of Psalm 110. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, so David, King David writes, the Lord says to my Lord. Okay, but what does that mean, right? Maybe you've read this. You probably, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you've maybe at least seen this or seen it quoted in the New Testament and just gone, okay, what is the Lord says to my Lord? Now, I want you to look really closely at your Bible. You have it in front of you? Okay, look where it says that first Lord. Do you notice that it's in all capital letters? This is really interesting. I'm going to teach you something here. Maybe you knew this already, but whenever you see that, the Lord in all caps like that, that is actually in Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament is written in. That means that the Hebrew right there is Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. So whenever you see all caps, that's what it means. Okay, so the first Lord, that's, that's God the Father. That's Yahweh. Well, who is the second Lord? We kind of have to ask ourselves, well, who is above King David at this point? Who, who else could he call his Lord? I mean, he's the king. Really, nobody is above him. And then when you actually read the rest of the psalm, you realize that this person that he's talking about is incredibly powerful. They even seem like they're a person that's going to be alive well into the future. Well, when we read the New Testament, we get to see that Jesus actually reveals to us that that second Lord is himself, the Messiah. And so King David, who's writing the psalm, he's got this incredibly special relationship with God, apparently is made privy to this amazing conversation. And so verse one sort of is like this. It's the Lord, God the Father, is saying to my Lord, David is saying, the Messiah, who we know is Jesus. So it's God the Father talking to Jesus the Son in this psalm. So it's like God the Father is saying, sit at my right hand, Jesus. Until I put, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, now that we kind of have our bearings of who's who and who's talking to who, let's read through the rest of the psalm. Verse 2 now. 
says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter. He's talking, again, God is talking to the Messiah. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, that means Jerusalem, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Now, I want you to notice something really amazing about this prophecy, and this is going to kind of guide our discussion for the rest of this time. So God the Father is describing his son, the Messiah, really as two different things. He's describing him as king, and as priest. In fact, if I were to title this particular psalm, I might even title it The Prophecy of the Priest King. So the psalm starts describing how the Messiah, who we know as Jesus, will one day live and rule as king. He will, as we see elsewhere in scripture, uh, be the king of kings. Uh, Verse 2 tells us, and it prophesies, that his rule will extend out from Zion, from Jerusalem. And we know that's a fulfilled prophecy. Because where did Christianity spread out from? It spread out from Jerusalem, which is pretty amazing. And then, because Jerusalem, by the way, when David wrote this, was just a no-name hole in the wall, basically. So this is pretty amazing. Then we're told, verse 3 now, that after the Messiah's rule begins, his troops will be willing in battle. They'll be arrayed in holy splendor. So they're going to have the spiritual armor on. Even the young men are going to rush in to battle with the Messiah. They're not going to be drafted. They're not going to be conscripted. They're going to be willing members of his army. Now, let me be really clear here. Uh, This psalm is not talking about a physical battle, but a spiritual battle. History is important here. Unlike Islam, Christianity and the Christian church did not expand through war and conquest, right? It expanded by the sharing of God's news. Our battle is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. This is explained really well, Paul does, in Ephesians chapter 6 in the New Testament. He says this, Ephesians 6. Paul says, put on the full armor of God. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, read like our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now this kind of language might seem a little odd to you. In the Christian church, we don't tend to use militaristic terms all that often anymore when we talk about the spreading of the good news of Jesus, partly because it can be easily misinterpreted, but it is indeed a biblical metaphor, right? Because our battle is a battle against evil. And I think you might be more familiar with these sort of military terms than you might think. Like surely you're familiar with the Salvation Army, right? Now when I say Salvation Army, what do you think of? I think for a lot of us, we think of, maybe you think of the clothing store, uh, maybe you think of at Christmas time, you know, they're the people ringing the red bell kell, the, the red kettle, the red bell kell. That's uh, you should you should check one of those out, the red kettle bell at Christmas. But that's not how they started the Salvation Army, nor was that their main purpose when they began. Uh, kind of like the YMCA, right? You know what the YMCA stands for, right? Maybe you, you know the letters or whatever. The YMCA stands for the Young Men's Christian 
association. And you might not be surprised to learn that their original uh, purpose was not for you to have a Zumba classes. Okay, a few years ago, uh, I read uh, Helen Hozier's excellent biography of William and Catherine Booth, who were the founders of the Salvation Army uh, over 100 years ago. It's an incredible book if you're looking for a cool book. Well, in the early days of the Salvation Army, this is what the Salvation Army did. If you want to know what the Salvation Army was about, they would literally march through, like a parade, the impoverished streets of East London. And there'd be like 100 people walking down the street in a march, kind of a parade. They had a Salvation Army band sort of attract the attention of people. So this was just straight up event evangelism. And they would encourage people to join them in their march through the city. And a lot of people would throw food at them. Other people would come and they would join the, the march. And by the time the march was over, they'd have five, six, seven, eight hundred people. And then the, the parade would end like in a huge warehouse. And William Booth, who was their founder, would get up on some sort of makeshift stage and he would preach a salvation message of the gospel and then ask people to come forward and accept Christ. And they would see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come to salvation because what was their purpose? They were the salvation army. And they used all of these military terms. In fact, William Booth, who's the founder, they called him the general because they saw themselves in a battle to win souls for Jesus Christ. And we too were in the Lord's army. And I I pray that you battle to bring people to the good news of Jesus. The Lord wants to use you and this church in a mighty way, particularly in this next year. I read a really good quote about this uh, about two weeks ago or so from missionary C.T. Studd. He says this. I'm going to share this quote with you. He says, I pray that when I die, all of hell will rejoice that I am no longer in the fight. See, that should be our heart as we battle against evil for the gospel. And that should be our heart as we serve the king. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just our king. He's also our priest. So look at verse four. Look at this amazing prophecy. Again, it's a thousand years before Christ. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you, the Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the father is saying to the son that he's not just the king of kings, that he is going to be like a priest, but a priest a special sort of priest. He's going to be a priest that has the authority to minister, because this is what a priest does. They minister in front of God on behalf of the people, uh, just as the priest in the Old Testament, right? They, they brought sacrifices of the people and before God, and they helped reconcile the people back to God. But the Messiah is not going to be just any ordinary priest. We're told that he's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you may read that and go, huh? Who? Okay, let me tell you who Melchizedek is. Uh, There's only actually three verses on Melchizedek uh, in the Bible, at least historically. Some of the New Testament books expound on him. But everything we know about Melchizedek in his original context is from the book of Genesis, chapter 14. I'll read you that passage right now. It's Genesis 14, uh, verse 18. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, of, of the true God. And he blessed Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram, God most high, by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Melchizedek 
is not like the other priest of the Old Testament. In fact, the typical priest in the Old Testament, like the one that you might think of when you think of an Old Testament priest, like the, the priest that would uh, perform animal sacrifices at the temple, they are Levites, meaning they're from the ancestral line of Levi. But Melchizedek lived 500 years before the first Levitical priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, began actually offering sacrifices. In fact, Levi himself, the ancestor of the Old Testament priests, as we know them, wasn't even born yet when Melchizedek was a priest. So this is a different sort of priesthood. If you look closely, you'll see that the Messiah actually looks more like Melchizedek than he does your typical Old Testament priest. Did you see, when we had it up on screen, or maybe you turned to Genesis 14, did you notice the two things that Melchizedek the priest brought to Abram in Genesis 14? What were they? Bread and wine. And what does the Messiah, Jesus, bring to the Last Supper? He brings bread and wine. Also in Genesis 14, Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of everything he has, just like we do with Jesus. Uh, there's more here. This is, the Bible is so rich. Uh, if you study the genealogy of, Matthew, uh, of Jesus in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus, if you trace back his lineage, he's not actually from the tribe of Levi, like the other priests. He's from the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of kings. And did you notice this about Melchizedek? It was right at the beginning. Melchizedek isn't just a priest. He's also a king. He's a priest king. And that's why the prophecy says that the Messiah will be in his order. Because the Messiah is not going to be just an ordinary, another priest coming to earth. He's a priest king. And one more thing I got to pull out. I just, I just, I love the word. We're told that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. You know what Salem is? Salem is the old town name for Jerusalem. He's the king priest of Jerusalem. Pretty cool. And so it's in this order of the priest king that the Messiah will come. That's what he'll be like. And I want you to think about the difference between a king and the priest. Like kings, they were people of strength, right? They rendered judgment. But your priest was almost the exact opposite, right? They were this like compassionate figure, the shepherd that offered sympathy to you. They kind of interceded. They prayed to God for you. They served the people. Then most famously, they offered sacrifices to help reconcile you to God. So the king is this figure of strength and judgment. The priest is this figure of love and mercy. Two separate offices, right? You don't have a king who's a priest and you don't have a priest who's a king. But Psalm 110 very clearly tells us that when the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be a priest king. He's both. And I want to tell you, you can't truly understand who Jesus the Messiah actually is unless you see him as both. In fact, if you see Jesus as more priest or more king, you're probably actually not correctly understanding who Jesus truly is. You read through the Gospels, the Bible goes a great length to show you both his kingly characteristics and his priestly characteristics. Right? You, you see him as the king. Right? Jesus is the king who can calm the storm. Right? The storm is raging and he can just go, hush. The storm is over. He rebukes the evil spirits with just one word. He, he rebukes the Pharisees to their faith, to their face. He calls them whitewashed 
tombs. He's the guy that walks into the temple and starts flipping tables. He's the guy who speaks about how he's going to judge the nations someday. Jesus is the king. But it's very clear in the gospels that he's also the priest. He's our priest. He's interceding to the father for us. He speaks so tenderly to the sick and the hurting. Think about this one. When the soldiers come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane and the fight breaks out and one of the soldiers loses his ear, Jesus doesn't join the fight. He walks up and he heals the soldier's ear. He's the guy that weeps with Martha about the death of her brother. And of course, like a priest, he gives us access to God through his sacrifice. The challenge, though, I think for Christians, and you see this a lot in Christian history, is people tend to worship Jesus as Jesus the priest, or we tend to worship him as Jesus the king. And and this goes all over. The pendulum just swings back and forth in Christian history. There's these places in time and in different cultures where Christians tend to worship Jesus like he's just the king, right? And they speak often of his justice and his wrath, right? And they speak very little of his compassion and his love, and then swings to the other side, and all of a sudden Christianity becomes all we're talking about is love, 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 forgiveness, 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 mercy, mercy, mercy. We never even talk about God's hatred, his revulsion of sin, and his judgment and of hell. We, we just, it's like we forget that he's the king, but he's both. He's the priest king in the order of Melchizedek. Like, let me ask you, if you were to draw a continuum, And on one end of the continuum, on the far end, you have Jesus the king. And the other far end of the continuum, you have Jesus the priest. Where would you place your view of Jesus on that continuum? I want to tell you that if you really study the scriptures and you read the Bible every day, and I encourage you to, maybe you even start rereading the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with this in mind. What you will find is Jesus is right there in the middle. He's the priest king. He's both. And we see this right in the gospel, right? The simple gospel message of what Christianity is all about. That you have sinned against God. And you are deserving of holy judgment. Right? Justice is not just something that God brings upon those we've deemed worse than us. It's something we deserve for our evil deeds. Jesus is the just, holy king. If you turn Jesus into some like meek shepherd who just kind of shrugs his shoulders and he just loves, then you, you are mocking God. That's not who he is. But he also loves you as your priest. He loves you despite your sin and rebellion. So much so that he offered his life in place of yours on the cross. And if you've turned Jesus into some sort of cop in the sky that will never forgive you unless you get good enough and get your life together, then you are mocking the love of God. He is the priest king. Glorious, majestic, compassionate, and loving. He is your amazing savior, the priest king. And the word has said it would be that way for thousands of years. And that's who he is. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that this psalm written 3,000 years ago not only proved to be so prophetically true when you were on earth, but it is true today, God, that you love us, and yet 
you are a glorious, powerful, majestic king. God, may we worship you in spirit, but also in truth as we learn more about you in your word. It's in your name we pray.